to the Summer Hits episodes of the Win Win Evangelism podcast. My name's Tina Waldrum. This summer, we're highlighting the top five episodes of 2022. This is number one, the most listened to episode of 2022. Thanks for listening to our show and welcome to you if you're new. If you're looking for further resources in evangelism, please check out our online courses and coaching programs. Now let's get into this week's episode. Today I'm speaking with Steve Morrison, who is a thanatologist, and that is a huge word, but Steve is an expert in death, dying, and bereavement. And the topic today is sharing Jesus when people die. Welcome to you, Steve. Thank you, Tina. It is fantastic to be part of your podcast today. Appreciate the invitation very much. Wonderful to have you along, Steve. 1,300 funerals, that is an extraordinary amount. How did you get into funeral chaplaincy? Yeah, good question. It's something that's always interested me. And then I went into uh, youth. I was a youth pastor at 23 and uh, and actually a, a young person in our church died. And so I was heavily involved in the funeral and I, I just found that I was sort of quite natural at it and and loved what I could do to help the family and I don't know. I, it just fitted. It was. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? But it did. It just fitted. And actually, the funeral home after that service asked if I would be prepared to do any other services for them as a funeral chaplain or a funeral celebrant. I said, "Yeah, that's sure. No worries." And uh, never in my wildest imagination did I think, you know, twenty five years later, I'd be uh, thirteen hundred funerals down the track. So uh, yeah, that's how it all started. Absolutely extraordinary. I would. It's fair to say that I have never spoken to a Christian person that I know that has done 1,300 funerals is amazing. And I love the fact that you love it because, Steve, all of us have people in our lives, non-Christian people in our lives, where somebody dies. And as a believer, as an everyday person, I want to somehow comfort that person at that time. But I want to be appropriate. I want to know how to even share Jesus when people die in ways that are, you know, appropriate. What's not appropriate? (laughs) What a great question. Uh, What's not appropriate is turn up and say, did your mother know Jesus? Because if she didn't, she'll be in hell right now burning. That would be inappropriate. And it's amazing how I think well-intended Christians can turn up at the wrong time with the wrong message. If somebody has died, uh, they're died, they're dead, and it's between them and Jesus, and who knows what's going on there, but we have to be super careful at that point that our focus isn't actually on the deceased, it's on the living and the pain the living are in and what we can do to support the living. People remember who turned up in crises. And if you turn up in crises with compassion and wisdom and care and gentleness and practicalness, uh, you'll be remembered as one of the people that turned up when we needed them most. And you may not need to use any words at all, Tina, to be the greatest witness for Jesus that you've ever been in that scenario. Yes, and I guess sometimes it, it could be a challenge like, I love to turn up and help people when people have died. And and I do love to think about those that are still living. But sometimes I can feel a bit awkward, Steve, myself. It's not like you deal with death every day of your life. Yeah. How do you get around that? I often talk to people about the three H's. 
hang around, hug and hush. So my thought is this, hang around, but don't be in the way. So read the room, read what's going on. You know, if you're there helping and all of a sudden 10 family members turn up, good time to leave, I would have thought. Uh, you know, maybe make the cups of tea and then head on out. Excuse yourself. I'll ring you later. I'll come back. Um, hug has two meanings to it. Um, hug is I will give somebody a genuine hug if they're a huggy person, but not everyone's a huggy person. Again, read the room in that. You know, if you came to my house with my wife and I, I'm a hugger, my wife isn't. So she wouldn't want you to walk in and hug her. She that would she would find that confronting. But the idea of hug as well is the thing that hugging says to me is I'm prepared to step into your world even though you're hurting so much. And I'm not I'm not afraid of your pain. I'm not afraid of your tears. I'm not afraid of your anger. I'm not afraid of your anger with God. I'm not afraid with your language that says God's a pig because he took my mum. You know, I'm not afraid of that because you're angry and you're hurting and and you can can drop that on me because it's okay. It'll be okay. So hug to me says I'm going to step into your world and accept your pain. And then the last one is hush. And hush is probably the most important one out of the three. You know, what can you say that's going to undo anything that just happened? Really, there's nothing. So to me, it comes back to this whole idea again of my witness at this time needs to be that when when Tina speaks to me in two months' time, she says, you know, Steve, when I was in my darkest hour, I just remember that you were there. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to be anything. You didn't try to Bible bash me. You just loved me. I've never felt love like that. I don't even know how you did that because I was so angry and I was so rude to you. How did you just love me? Well, there's a conversation, isn't there, eight weeks down the track. Well, the reason I can do that is because I've got such peace in me because of Jesus. I know that when I walked in that situation, God would help me, that, that that he would just help me be everything that you needed. I didn't know what you needed. I just wanted to be there for you. And so I guess it's my faith. I, I think it's my faith that really sustained me and strengthened me and, and was really important to me. You know that's important to me, Tina. You know, you've always known that I'm a faith person. And I guess I just wanted to love on you. Whoa. I mean, people are going to run to you when you're like that instead of be repelled and run the other way. So I think at the time of crisis, Christians have the most ideal opportunity to be Jesus, to literally be his hands and feet to these people. And it's often not pretty and it's often not um, convenient (laughs) and it's rarely Christian, but boy, what a testimony we can bring in those scenarios. Yeah, I mean, and it's just, oh, such an awkward space to be in. I'm already <laughs> learning so much just from these few words that you've said, Steve. Oh, I'm glad. What do you do when you have a friend or someone that then says they know that you're a Christian? Let's just imagine they're a, a, not a Christian, not, you know, really too enthusiastic about Jesus at all, and they're asking you these pointed questions like, is my grandfather, is my mother, is my son in heaven? Yeah, well, and, and I have had that on many, many occasions over over 25 years, and I still come back to my focus of being on the living. So I would be very gentle and cautious how I answered that. Um, you know, I 
I feel confident in my own salvation because I, I am a confessor of Jesus, but I, I, I don't know your mum. And even if we think your mum had no idea about Christ, we don't know about the last moments. We don't know what was going on in her heart. We don't know, you know, um, the, the Bible says that, that if, we don't, if we don't cry out, the rocks will. Like all the creation will cry out of Christ's love for people, and so we've got to be so careful that that we don't, um, you know, assume. So I'm very careful about that. So I won't say, "Oh, yeah, there's no doubt your mum's not in heaven." I, I would never do that, not ever. But I equally wouldn't say, "Oh, there's no doubt your mum is heaven," if if I literally have no idea. So I think we have to be careful and integral in our own stance on how we do that. Again, it comes back to kindness and gentleness and care with these people. I remember Tina at doing my master's um, with the Sydney College of Divinity and I was looking for an essay that would be quick and easy. <laughs> I just, I just, I wanted to get this theology thing done, you know. And um, so I picked a really easy one, which was what happens to non-Christians when they die. And then I researched it for the next few months and realised my um, dogmatic, very narrow-minded, Pentecostal preacher boy did not have a good answer at all. I did not have a good answer. And it opened my mind to realize, boy, it's so much bigger, isn't it? It's so much bigger. I have an intellectually uh, disabled sister. What, well, what understanding does she have of the love of Christ? Even though I try to show her and we all try to show her, you know, there's so many scenarios that we could talk about where we can't give a definitive answer. And I think giving definitive answers can be harmful to people. So I we might say something like, you know, I don't know about mum, but I know about me and and you could be really sure too. You know, if it's something that you're thinking about, you could be really sure about your about your eternity. And then that opens up this beautiful conversation. Now of course part of the risk of that is they go then, but what happened then to my mum? Well that's the beauty of Christ. He 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 is judge. He's the one that will sort that out. That's not our role. It's not my responsibility. All I know is that uh, I'm here to help you and I love you and I'm caring about you and keep bringing it back to that scenario. Yeah, and I think that because you've told me, Steve, that my focus needs to be on the living rather than the dead, that changes everything for me. If I can just move forward with that one piece, that helps me as a believer when someone around me, someone's mum or father dies, to keep my focus. Otherwise, yeah, you can just do some crazy stuff as a Christian. I mean, it's yeah. embarrassing, isn't it, really, <laughs> some of the things that you do here? No, no, totally, and we don't always get it right, and I haven't always got it right, but we can get it really wrong. In fact, uh, you know, we spoke about this podcast about a week ago, and, and then since then I, I was having dinner with um, a f- two families, and they were – I was going to use the word lamenting, and I think it's the right word. They were, they were in agony because their their son's uh, young wife, like late twenties, had died pretty suddenly from cancer. And this Christian group turned up on the doorstep saying, "You don't know us, but we heard that your wife died, and we want to go and pray for her and raise her from the dead, and we need your permission to be able to go to the funeral home, and we're going to believe for her, and you should have believed more, and and it." It, it has caused so much pain and agony and turmoil to this family. Uh, and, and this was a couple preparing for ministry. These are solid, solid Bible-believing Christians who are now in so much turmoil because of this vigilante group that turned up on their doorstep. 
it's not right. It's not okay to treat someone like that. And you can go, oh, but Steve, their intent was to raise a person from the dead. You have no right to go and do that to somebody you know nothing of. That is an invited space. That is not, you don't gate crash that space. Um, and again, I've come back to this idea of caution and care and and wisdom to handle people carefully. They are they are so fragile, so fragile, and we can help them take steps forward by the way we handle them, or we can wound them, and some of those wounds can be very irreparable. Yes, absolutely. And I think back to my own life, to be really honest, Steve, when I was new to Christianity um, and my conversion to Christ was quite dramatic, I was a little bit overboard. Like I, I could be maybe one of those vigilante people that have made those those mistakes. Yep. What's in our minds that we feel like sometimes we have to be like that? Because I'm sure there's other people listening today that – Maybe they're like that and they're not new to Christianity, but what what are we thinking? Yeah. Well, well I'm the same. I, I am also guilty. You know, I, I I was full on. I mean, I was the when I was a teenager, I, I was the street evangelist in the street that would literally walk up to someone and say, If you don't know Jesus right now, I'm telling you you're going to hell. And that that was my opening line. Like to to hundreds of people thinking that somehow I was going to win them over. Uh, you know, it was just and I think in our in our deep desire for people to come to Christ, and it is a deep desire and a genuine deep desire, and our deep longing that that somehow we would just be able to cut through everything else and and get to them, that in that we can perhaps lack the wisdom and understanding of maybe the damage that we're doing. I've always believed, and I even used this when I spoke to this family during the week, that I, I said, you know, I believe their intentions were for good. They generally wanted to see your wife come back to you. I mean, I, I believe that would be their intention. Um, unfortunately, how it played out and the delivery has caused you a lot of pain. But I, I don't for a moment believe that would be their, you know, their intent. Don't make it right for one second, but it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been their intent. So I think we passionately want to get to people and Maybe in our passion we can get it wrong. I'm just wondering, is it appropriate to ask people during these times if you could pray for them? I mean, not right there on the spot, but is it appropriate to pray for, you know, those people that are still living, they've lost somebody? Is it appropriate as a Christian to say, look, would you mind if I'll be praying for you this evening or praying for you to get through this time? Yeah, totally, and, and especially if you've got relationship, which I'm assuming you do because you're at their house or whatever. I can't ever remember a time when someone said no to me to do that. Um, I think that's a wonderful thing. Again, out of our passion and drive and maybe sometimes our own insecurities, we need to read the room. You, you know, it's not appropriate to say, oh, let me pray for you all now if they're non-believers and they don't want you to do that. But I think it's beautiful to say, hey, I just want you to know I will be praying for you and your family because this is such a difficult time. People are going to say thank you, you know, thanks for doing that. Um, and I've been surprised on many, many occasions how many have said, oh, you know, oh, I thought you were going to pray now, Steve. Oh, well, I could if you like. Oh, really? Oh, that would be nice. 
and and you end up praying with them. Um, you know, I I remember going to a friend. Um, her sister was passing away in the hospital, and she rang me quite upset and hysterical, and said, "Could you come and pray for her? You know, I'm not a believer, but you are. Can you come and pray for her?" I said, "Yes, I'll come to the hospital." So I went to the John Hospital. And her and her husband met me in the car park and I hopped out of the car and I, I went to walk in. They said, aren't there some tools or something you've got to bring? Like, isn't there some special thing you need to do this, a ritual? And I laughed and I said, oh, I could bring a Bible if you like. And and I went up there and, and they literally stood there and I said, and and we put our arms around each other and I prayed earnest, genuine prayers of healing and comfort and kindness for her sister. Um at their request, they desperately wanted their sister to be okay, and uh, and she did rally actually for for some months, and then she she did pass away a few months later. But um, they were thankful for those few months, and and often say to me even now, you know, it must be twenty years later that they believe my prayer gave them three more months, which is a really interesting thing for non non believers. So I keep coming back to that idea, Tina, that we we want to attract people to Christ and and the way we handle them in crises will either attract or repel. Totally agree. Absolutely. I've just recently, I've had to walk with a friend who's lost a family member and I was very mindful of that the whole time, you know. And you also want to be a person, Steve, I think, of integrity when you are handling people. And I think that we all know what that is on the inside. You know, when you all of a sudden have gone into this, I don't know, what do you call it? Some type of a religious space (laughs) where all of a sudden you're not really authentically caring for them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and interesting you say that because I think even our language has to be so carefully considered. You know, the words that we use and and how we use it and, um, you know, we're so... Sometimes we don't realise, I think, the Christianese that we're using just in our normal language, in our usual conversation, that doesn't matter when we're around our friends from church or our believing friends. And But when you're, again, you're in a room of, of, of 10 grieving people that don't have that background, then, then the language has to be um, so careful. You know, I, I'm telling you, that there's, there's fewer things more confronting when I walk into the house or the, or the hospital room of, a family where, you know, a six-year-old girl or something has just died and and I'm walking in and I don't know them. I've just been sent there from the funeral home and it's so confronting. It's so difficult and I have to weigh every word that I say and how I say it and, and how I can bring comfort and not offer empty promises. And I, I keep, what can I do today that would just help them take a step forward? I always say that. If they could just take one step forward today, that's great. It's great. <laughs> just one step. And um, so, yeah, even our language has to be really, really careful, really careful how we how we do that. And then, of course, you have the next dynamic of let's, uh, using that analogy, let's say the six-year-old girl has passed away. Well, she might have an eight-year-old brother. So how do you, or a five-year-old or a four-year-old, well, what does forever mean? And what does dead mean? And what does dying mean? And so our language has to be really careful because some things that we do that people well-intentionally say is they'll say things like this, Jenny went to hospital and died. Well, then the kids never want to go to hospital because that's where Jenny died. Or they say, Jenny went to sleep and she just never woke up. 
Well, guess what? Kids are traumatized. They don't want to go to sleep because Jenny never woke up. And so we use this language to try to soften and often without realizing it can cause significant challenge going forward. And so just to answer that for your listeners, we always use the line, Jenny's body stopped working. It stopped working. She didn't go to hospital and die. She went to hospital to get better. She didn't go to sleep and not wake up. What happened was her body stopped working when she was in bed. She went to hospital and and her body stopped working. And you can't live if your body's not working. Um, and so then you have that conversation of death and eternity and whatever. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big area and I, I think it's a really privileged position that anybody gets invited into as a Christian. My first boss, Pastor Joseph Bowes, he would always say to me, walk gently amongst the sheep. It's a good reminder, isn't it? Walk gently amongst the sheep. Yeah, very good. I would imagine that having some type of education or understanding of grief is helpful in your situation. What what a couple of things would be helpful for just your everyday person in understanding grief that would give us a couple of little tools to be better in this space with people? Sure. So we've already talked about the three H's, hang around, hug and hush. Uh, You know, always remember that. Um, The idea is be signposting. So we want to we want a great signpost to Christ and His love. We don't want to. We don't want to repel. The other thing is everybody's different, and so you'll often go into a, a, a situation and and somebody's sitting there just quietly in the corner, not engaging with you at all. Someone else is fussing everywhere, and they're making sixteen cups of tea, and they're just busy, 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 busy. Um, I say that grief magnifies the personality. It magnifies who the person is. So I find that those who are quiet usually go quieter. I find those who are louder usually get louder. I find those who are good at hospitality usually get baking and cooking and, and doing the cups of teas. And, and those who are organized, they're organizing the funeral and they've got to get this organized now. And, and the one that doesn't want to do anything is sitting there going, would you just stop it? Can you just stop organizing everything and let my dad just died? Let me grieve. And the other one's going, yes, but we have to get this organized. <laughs> we see those dynamics and it's just enhanced more. And don't be put off by that, but realize, oh, okay, that's that magnification of what's already there. I say that grief brings out the best and the worst of people. And, and, I, and I've seen some hideously horrible things in funerals that, that you just wouldn't believe possible. You know, I, I remember one vividly, 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 and it was a three-month-old baby had passed away. And, and it was a 16-year-old mum with about a 22-year-old partner. Very rough family. And uh, we were at the grave. It was a graveside service, very hard to do because you – you know, three months of life, it's, they're, they're difficult. And this young girl, really petite little girl, I remember clearly, just 16 years old, she just started in this hysteria around the grave when we lowered the, when we lowered the little white coffin. And she's on her knees and she's trying, she's trying to jump in the grave with her baby. And I'm on the, I'm in the dirt in my suit and the funeral director and we're holding her up and we're, we're, we're consoling her and, and trying to help her. And we calmed everything down and just everything, everything's calmed down. And the, the dad is standing above her, but he, he didn't engage with her really at all. And then his mate comes up and says, you know, let's give him a name. It's called, I don't know, Darren. And says, hey, Darren, did you get that tattoo you talked about? He goes, yeah, mate, right there next to the grave. He takes off his shirt and shows his mate his new tattoo. So his mate takes off his shirt, 
and shows him his new tattoo. And all the mates came along, and it's this tattoo show at the literal graveside of this baby with the mother in complete hysteria. I mean, I've never forgotten that scene. It, it was just, uh, it, it was like something of a horror movie to me. You know, not only didn't help your your partner, your the disrespect, the un- misunderstanding. It was just, it was just horrible. The, the things people do. I was naive, Tina, and thought that, you know, if if families are fighting and then someone dies in the family, a bit like the movies, everyone stops fighting for the day so you can have the funerals. I've had to do. On more than one occasion, I've had to do two funerals for the same person because one half of the family would not go in the same room as the other half. So we we had an order of service. We had the body in the coffin. We did the service. The, the hearse drove off. They did a lap of the block and parked. We emptied everybody out. An hour later, we brought the same coffin back in, brought the same deceased person in. We had a different order of service with different speakers and different music because the other half of the few, of the family were now going to have their service. I, in my wildest imagination, I didn't believe that stuff happened. It happens. And then you have services where they bring prisoners and they come in chains, and it's like it's like an American TV show where their their feet are chained, their hands are chained, they're chained to their bodies. They've got to get a guard either side of them. They've got a gu- armed guard at each of the doors. Uh, you know, they rattle their chains, and depending on who they are, it, it can get really crazy and and loud and frightening, and 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 yet somehow again, this person needs Christ. They need Jesus, and and I need to somehow bring a a level of kindness and love and 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 inspiration in my service that that hopefully tells people that life is worth living, that it's. It's worth embracing and it's worth making great decisions. And the great decision is living a life where Christ is the center, where it gives you your moral compass, where it enables you to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to squeeze through those moments in life that are difficult. I want them all to understand that that is the scenario. Even the guy or the girl that's coming in in chains and, 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 and it is, it's confronting and it, and it can be frightening and, and then there's people of all sorts of lifestyles that I'm not a part of that, that I'm loving on. And, and I keep going, Oh Lord, what an opportunity. <laughs> what a marvelous opportunity to just love on people. There's my favorite, my favorite saying of all time. And I'm probably getting too wound up now. I'll have to stop. But my, one of my favorite, my favorite sayings is this preach all of the time. And if you have to use words. And I've, I, I always keep that at the forefront, that my actions and my behaviour and my love and my kindness and my generosity, my sensitivity would somehow shout the gospel without me having to use those words. And, um, yeah, it, it's a privileged, it's such a privileged position to walk with a family who are in grief and are struggling to get out of it. There's a thing about grief. We use the idea that grief is like a mountain, and the mountain never moves. You know, I lost my dad four years ago. He, he was so close to me, so close to our family. My love and grief for him has never gone away. I don't expect to ever wake up and go, oh, I don't miss my dad today. I don't care less. That'll never happen. But what happens is with the mountain of grief is over time, and sometimes with support and sometimes with professional counselling support, whatever you need, you learn to go over the mountain, under the mountain, around the mountain, or even through the mountain. 
but the mountain of grief doesn't move. It, it's something you learn to navigate life with. And uh, it doesn't have to diminish life. It doesn't have to wreck life. Yeah, death is as real as life. It's part of what we live. Um, and and Christ is not removed from it. Um, I, I remember doing a service for a 12-year-old boy, my friend's son, actually, and I was brought in late on the journey, actually. And the reason was is because they were with a particular minister and my friend said to him, how could God allow my son to die? And the minister said, when your son died, God looked away and didn't watch. That was his answer. And they were so devastated and traumatized by that, that when he called me and he said, Steve, I didn't ask you to do the funeral because I just wanted you to sit with me, but please, can you do the funeral? This is what he said. How could God not love my son? Like, it's just horrendous. Oh, friends who listen to this podcast, let's be the people that no matter what crisis comes some way, people want to call us. And that could be a divorce, a marriage breakdown, a runaway kid. It could be a death. It could be a sickness. It could be whatever it is. Let us be the ones that people say, please come, because you bring calm, you bring kindness, you bring hope, you bring you bring you, and we know that's Christ in us. And so that's what I would encourage. Yeah, what a fascinating discussion, Steve. I mean, I'm just fired up listening to you, and, <laughs> and I feel really more equipped to actually cope in this space. So I'm going to drop in the podcast show notes some information so that you can stay connected to Steve um, at stevemorrisoncoaching.com, and there's some articles there about grief. Um, and also some other um, books or things that might be of interest that could help you in this space to be more effective at sharing Jesus when people die and how that looks. So, Steve Morrison, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure, Tina. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Win Win Evangelism podcast today. If this was helpful for you, please share it with others so they can learn also. If you, your small group or your church would like to upskill more in personal evangelism, learn how it can be easy, natural and not forced, why don't you check out our online free sample course on missionwithgod.com forward slash free sample. I trust that our podcast and our online personal evangelism course can be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.